The desire of Titus Women is to invite women around the world to know Jesus as their Savior, Center, and Source. May God guide and encourage you through this message. Turn with me in your testament to Paul's letter to the Ephesian Christians. Reading just a brief passage from chapter 5 of Ephesians. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. May I read that for you again? It's a priceless passage. Therefore be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us, and given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. I never cease to be amazed at uh, the surprises that I find in Scripture. This spring, I thought I would sit down and read through the book of Ephesians. And so I just started and was reading, looking for something else. And I came to that fifth chapter, that first verse, and I read in the NIV, Be imitators of God. And I laughed out loud. My first reaction was, Paul, how stupid can you be? Me, imitate God? (laughs) I may imitate a lot of other people, but me, imitate God? Because what went through my mind were the traditional attributes of God. You know, he is the omnipotent one. He has all power. There are few people in human history who've tried to play that role. (laughs) But they usually have ended up looking more like fools than like wise men. And so you get an Adolf Hitler and Eva Brown in their bunker, hold up, and they take their poison to get out because he wanted to be the most powerful creature in existence. So uh, I surely can't imitate God in any of that. And then we speak of his omniscience. He knows everything. Now, I've spent a good bit of my time in life, in education, and in learning. And there are few people who wanted to think they could know about everything, but what I've learned about life is that if you've got an unsolved question and you seek and pursue it and you find the answer to it, you always find ten more unsolved problems when you get the one answered. So my experience has not been exploding knowledge. My experience has been exploding ignorance. So I laughed and I thought, well, you know, omnipresence. Nobody ever tried to imitate that. Because there's no way you and I can do that. You and I are creatures of time and space. And so we're limited to a moment. You can't live ten minutes from now until ten minutes from now. And you can't recall ten minutes ago. You're where you are and there's nothing you can do about it. And the same thing is true about space. You can't be here today and somewhere else. You can only choose to be in one spot at one time. As I thought about that, though, I suddenly realized, because this was this spring, and I was conscious that uh, 
We have two great-granddaughters, identical twins, that are on the ground. But at that time that I was reading that, they were in Hungary, where Father was teaching uh, English, and uh, there as a representative of World Gospel Mission. And I realized that I could sit down at a computer, and in about 15 seconds I could be communicating with Dan and with Katie Beth and learning what's happening to those twin great-granddaughters of ours. Now, that's, a, that's approaching something of omnipresence, but that still is a long ways from what God enjoys everywhere at all times in every place. So I looked at it, and as I sort of laughed to myself about the text, I looked back at it and thought, wait a minute, Paul conditioned what he was saying. You notice what he says, be imitators of God as dear children walk in love. But the significant thing is he defined the love that I'm supposed to walk in. You know, it's very easy for us with our sentimental understanding of love to think about, uh, you know, uh, a very superficial view of it. But Paul wasn't going to let us get away with that. So he said, what I want you to do is to be like God in when he manifested himself in the cross of Jesus Christ, when he sacrificed himself as a love offering for you and for me. And so Paul says, in that you can imitate God. Because you see, what it is is a giving of yourself for somebody beyond yourself for somebody other than yourself, pouring out your life for another. Now, as I read that, I checked it in the Greek, and as I checked it in the Greek, I noticed that expression, sweet-smelling savor, or fragrant aroma. There are different translations for it. And I recognize the expression because it is a sacrificial expression that finds its roots in the Old Testament. You will remember when Noah had built the ark and the world had been destroyed by water. And at the end of that journey, you will remember, the flood receded and Noah stepped out of the ark. And one of the first things that he did was to make an offering to God. And that offering, as it ascended, a fire offering, as the odor of it ascended to God, the scripture in Genesis 8 tells us it was a sweet-smelling savor in the nostrils of God. Now, it's interesting that the two Hebrew words that are used there are the Hebrew counterpart to the two words that are used in this passage in Ephesians. And they're not used many times. One of them is used only three times, and the other one is used only five. So when I realized that this expression, a sweet-smelling savor, a fragrant aroma, used that few times in the New Testament, I thought it won't be hard for me to chase those down and see how they relate to each other. And uh, it's wonderful what happens when you begin to see how Scripture ties to Scripture. So I found, but first let me say, you know, it intrigued me this idea that you can become a fragrant aroma in the nostrils of God. It's a fascinating concept that my B.O. can be pleasing to my Heavenly Father. 
But that's exactly what's being said. That the odor that emanates from my life will not be an offensive one to him, but the odor that emanates from my life will be a fragrant aroma in the nostrils of God. So when I thought of that, I was captured. And so I turned to find the other instances where it is used. Now, one of the places where one of these words and the key one is used is in John 12. It is the last trip that Jesus ever made to Jerusalem. You will remember that he now has spent three to three and a half years traveling back and forth across Palestine, preaching, teaching, healing. And as he has continued his ministry, the hostility of the leadership of Israel gets greater to him, so that he now has to be very careful that he does not get in a spot where he can be trapped and be killed before he has finished his ministry. So when he comes the last time for the Feast of the Passover at Jerusalem, where he will be the Passover lamb, when he comes, he comes and he is not content to stay inside the city of Jerusalem. So he turns to Lazarus's house outside, not too many minutes walk away from Jerusalem, but there he goes because he will be perfectly safe with Lazarus, with Mary, and with Martha. Now, I don't know about you, but as I thought of that, I'm grateful for Lazarus and Mary and Martha. And when I get to heaven, I want to thank them for providing a place of refuge and safety for Jesus the last time he ever came to Jerusalem. And so he came, they loved him. And while he was there, they prepared a feast for him. Now, there are some indications that uh, this is the same feast that is described in Luke as being in the house of Simon. You will remember Simon the leper. It is also recorded as being in the home of Simon in Matthew. So we do not know whether it was actually in Mary's house or whether it was in Simon's house, but they were together in that matter of honoring Jesus. And so while he is eating and enjoying the feast and enjoying the expressions of love, Mary takes a box of ointment that we are told is worth 300 denarii. Now, the indications that we have are that a denarius was a normal day's wage for a day laborer in Palestine. And so when she took ointment worth 300 denarii, she was taking ointment that was worth the equivalent of a year's salary for a day laborer in Palestine. And she takes it, breaks the box, and pours it. Now, in the other synoptic, two of them, it is indicated she pours it on his head. But in John's account, we're told she poured it on his feet. Now, I don't know, nobody can prove exactly the relationship between all these, but I don't think there's any question but that she put it on both his head and his feet. But you see, John, who was very selective in what he told us about Christ's life, 
You will remember at the end he said, if I told you everything he did, the world wouldn't be big enough to hold the books. So he is telling us exactly what he wants us to know as what he considers the most important. She wet his feet with her tears, she poured the ointment over them, and then she loosed her hair and dried his feet with her hair. Now, that is an astounding thing for a woman in that culture. Let me pinpoint it for you in this way. There was one Jewish mother who had six sons, all of whom became high priests. And that's a remarkable uh, witness for a woman to have six sons who were high priests, chief priests in the temple in Jerusalem. So some Jew asked her how it was that she could be so blessed of God that she could have six sons who held the highest spiritual office that could be held among the Jews. And she said, oh, the reason is very clear. Not even the rafters in my bedroom ever saw my hair down my back. You see, her hair was a woman's glory. And it was saved for her husband alone. And it was not to be exposed to anybody else. And so that woman had kept her hair for her husband. And as a result, God had richly blessed her with these six sons. Now here is Mary. It's very interesting that William Temple thinks that this is Mary Magdalene. And that Mary Magdalene was the sister of Lazarus and of Martha, but she looses her hair and she dries his feet with her hair. Now that's what you call a total exposure of oneself. That's even more exposing than going to the altar. <laughs> you can pick any illustration you want to pick, but she lays herself bare before the object of her love Jesus Christ, and pours out on his head and on his feet this priceless ointment. Now, I don't know about you, but as I think about that, that's what I would call lavish affection. She's giving the best that she's got, and she is giving it totally to him. You will remember that Judas was concerned because that could have been sold and could have been used for the poor. And Jesus said, no, you, you'll always have the poor, but you're not going to always have me. She now has a chance to pour out her affection on me, and don't you rebuke her, because she is preparing my body for burial. Now, you know, when I get to have my want to ask Mary if she anticipated the cross. I don't know whether she anticipated the cross or not, but I know that ten days later she didn't have any regrets about anything she'd done. Ten days later, after he had been crucified, she had no regrets that she had given the best that she had to offer, poured it out lavishly for him. And you know I expect the day will come when the thing that will give us most satisfaction are any lavish expressions of affection that we've made toward Jesus Christ. And you know one of the things I notice is 
that uh, there's no way you can lavishly pour out affection on Jesus Christ without it being fruitful. Do you notice what Jesus said? Said, don't rebuke her. Wherever the story of me is told, the story of this woman will be told because it is a legitimate expression of the response that a person is supposed to have to me. And you know, as I think back across my years, and they're substantial now, one of the beauties about being a Christian is the people you meet. I don't know about anybody else, but there are moments when I think, if God never gave anything else to me in being a Christian except the people that I've had the privilege of knowing that are Christians, it would have been worth it just to have the privilege of knowing those great people. And do you know, as you get back to the ones that have influenced you the most, somewhere behind those lives, there is somebody who has had that heart cry to just pour out lavish affection on the Lord Jesus. I was thinking as I was getting ready for this afternoon, we had a lady who used to come to Asbury occasionally. She was a British missionary to Africa, Helen Rosevere. If you've never read her stories, you've cheated yourself. An incredible woman. A Cambridge woman who graduated from Cambridge University as a medical doctor way back in the 30s and went to Africa and spent her life there in devotion to Christ. But you know what it was that captured her? She heard the story of C.T. Studd, who when he inherited a fortune from his father, gave it all away. I knew his son-in-law, who spent 18 years with him in Africa. The last thing he gave was, you will remember if you know the story, he saved 5,000 pounds to give to his bride. And then when in China he fell in love with a missionary girl, he said, now you've got to understand we're going to give everything we've got to Christ. And she said, good. When they got married, they, she had a band across her dress that said it. Hallelujah! That's the kind of people they were. But nevertheless, when the, she agreed to marry him, he sent her a check for 5,000 pounds. She immediately fired it back to him and said, cancel the wedding plan. So he wrote back in great distress and said, what do you mean cancel the wedding plan? She said, I will never marry a liar. And you told me that we had to trust God. So he sent the 5,000 pounds to General Booth and the Salvation Army. And he got his hallelujah bride, and his life was such poured out like that, that Helen Rosevere, as a Cambridge University student, said, I want to live that kind of life. And so one of the great lives of the 20th century came out of that life lived much earlier, but a lavish affection for Christ. Now, uh, you know, there's great joy in lavish affection for Christ. <laughs> it's releasing, it's liberating, it's cleansing, it's freeing. When you just say, God, how can I show you how much I love you? Now, that's one of the three other occurrences of this. Now, the second of the three is in Philippians 4. And you will remember that that's a remarkable scripture because Paul is now in prison in Rome. 
and he's writing to the dearest friends he has. Because, you see, the Philippian church is the one he seems to have had greatest acceptance in, greatest love from, and he responded that love. So as you read the Philippian letter, there's a tenderness in it and a beauty in it. You know that he's writing to people for whom he has great love. He comes to the end of the last chapter, and he says, I want to thank you for sending me a missionary offering. He said, it's not the first missionary offering you've ever sent, because from the beginning when you knew about me, you sent to me to meet my needs so that I could serve Christ more effectively. And now you have sent another offering to me. He's sitting in a prison cell in Rome, in chains. And they've sent an offering to him. Epaphroditus has brought it to him. And he said, that offering is a sweet-smelling savor. It is a fragrant aroma in the nostrils of God. And so he said, let me tip you off. My God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Now, you know, it takes me a long time to see things. You know, one of the things that I've done, and maybe you've done the same thing, is I see a great verse and pull it out of context. And sometimes we pull those great verses out and misapply them. There are two in that last chapter of Philippians we've done that with, but this is one. Do you know to whom that verse was spoken? It was spoken to people who just participated in a missionary offering. Do you want God to supply all your needs? Maybe the key to it is for you to give significantly for the evangelization of the world. Because when we give that way, it is a sweet-smelling savor. It is a fragrant aroma that arises in the nostrils of God. Now, uh, the third passage, the last one, is uh, even more significant to me. It is fraught with theological, soteriological significance. It is in the second chapter of Paul's second Corinthian letter. Paul is writing now to a church that was one of the most troubled churches in the first century. It's interesting how oftentimes we have taken Corinthians almost as a model for some of us, but it was a deeply troubled church, and Paul was trying to write and lovingly correct it in many of its aberrations. And so now he writes and says in verse 14 of the second chapter, Now thanks be unto God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ. That the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ may be spread in every place in us. Isn't that interesting? Now let me go through that again. Now thanks be unto God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ, that the fragrance of the knowledge of God may be spread in us in every place. Now he's saying God wants in us to spread the fragrance of the knowledge of God across the earth. Now how does he do it? He does it by leading us in triumphal procession. 
Now, for many years, I misread that passage. In Indianapolis, there's a half-price bookstore that's uh, about a half a mile from OMS headquarters. And periodically, I have to go to OMS headquarters, and so I always manage, if I can, to stop by that half-price bookstore and just check the religion section. So one day I was in there, it's a huge bookstore, and I noticed a book, paperback, on this particular passage. It was on 2 Corinthians 2, 14 through 3, 5. And so I pulled it down and looked at it, and it was 9.95. I thought, you know, there are a lot of injustices in the world because I checked and found that it was a Ph.D. dissertation done by an American at Heidelberg University. And he spent three years sitting on his bottom slaving that thing out, and I bought it three years of work for nine ninety-five. But I wasn't lamenting that. But I took it home and read it, and he told the story of the vocabulary in this verse, 2 Corinthians 2.14. It's interesting the word which means to lead in triumphal procession is the word for actually from which we get in English the word triumph. So every time you use the word triumph, it's pulled right out. It is the same word which is found here. The Greek word is triumbuo. It's got a TH instead of a T, but that's no problem. And it's got a B instead of a PH, but that's no problem for the linguist. It has come down from, and we always thought it was an old Greek word. And it spoke of a triumphal procession. But the guy who did the dissertation chased and found that it's an old Etruscan term. And that the Etruscan triumphal procession was different from the Roman triumphal procession. And there's theology and the difference. You see, in the Roman triumphal procession, the conquering general or the conquering king, returning to Rome, would march down the main drag in Rome, leading his triumphal procession, bringing his prisoner behind him in chains and in disgrace. But in the Etruscan triumphal procession, The one who led the triumphal procession was the conquered king in chains who led the procession so everybody could spit on him, ridicule him, cast their scorn on him. And then at the end of the procession, the conquered king was sacrificed to the God who gave the victory to the Etruscan king. Now, the author of the book said, Most of our biblical commentators across the years have missed this because what they thought was, like uh, the traditional interpretation is, you will notice it says, Now, thanks be unto God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ. And they said this is an expression representative of of the resurrection that Christ has conquered sin, death, hell, and the grave, and has come through victoriously, and now he calls us to follow him, the conquering king, as he marches through history triumphantly. 
Now they said Paul got his metaphors mixed up because in the second half of the verse he talks about, and through us the fragrance of the gospel may be spread in every place. But do you know how you get fragrance out of anything? You have to crush it. I found myself pulling down my old 1911 edition of Encyclopedia Britannica. You know, they brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh to Jesus. And so I checked the article on frankincense and myrrh. And do you know where the myrrh comes from? It comes from East Africa and the islands off East Africa from a tree. And do you know how you get it out? You strip the tree of its bark, and then you slash the tree with a knife, and the tree weeps. In fact, the writer of the article said it produces ovulate drops. Now, I had never heard the word ovulate before, but you don't have to think hard to know what they mean by ovulate. That means tear-shaped. And so the tree that has been slashed weeps these ovulate, tear-shaped drops of Rosin, and then that hardens. And when it hardens, you take that and crush it, grind it to powder, and then it is dissolved in a fluid, and there you get your perfume. So the scholar said, Paul got his metaphors mixed up, because that leading us in triumphal procession speaks of the resurrection and that fragrant aroma speaks of the cross being crushed so the aroma can come. But he said, no, Paul didn't mix his metaphors because the first one is the same as the second one, that Christ came and at the end of the procession he was put on a cross, crucified. And he says, if you'll follow me to that cross and if you'll come to your cross, you remember what he said? If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And so Paul says, if you'll go through the cross behind Jesus, you'll follow him. Then the fragrance of the gospel will come out of your life. And it will spread through us in every place. Now, uh, God's business, saving-wise, is to save the world. And if he's going to save the world, the only way he can do it is for you and me to go the way of the cross the way his son did and follow him. And so there's some who speak about the knife of the cross where God comes and takes the most precious thing we've got, the thing we love the most. Maybe our security, it may be a relationship, it may be a treasure, it may be an ambition, who knows what it is. You alone know what it is in your life. And what it is in your life may be very different from mine. And he comes and says, you've got to give it to me and that'll be like death. You'll be giving up your child the thing you love the most. But when you come to that place where you give it up and you come to the end of you and what you want, 
then we can come to the beginning of me. We'll come to the beginning of me, and then my presence can come through your life as a fragrant aroma, spread in every place. And so Paul says in that passage, we are the aroma of life unto life to those that believe. But we're the fragrance of life unto life to those that believe. But we are the aroma of death to those that do not believe. And so we stand in Christ's place as we follow Him through the cross. Now, I don't know what you understand by that, but I don't know where you get a greater holiness text than that. Because He is saying, yes, you need to believe on Me, but the proof of your believing is whether you'll turn loose the totality of your being everything about you, and you'll let him be totally Lord in your life. And when you come to the end of yourself, then the fragrance of God, the Spirit of God can flow. And through you, his knowledge will be spread wherever you go. And it will be Christ in you, the hope of glory, not just for you, but Christ in you, the hope of glory for those among whom you live. And so Paul could say, for me to live is Christ. And it meant that Christ was a fulfillment of his life. But for the Philippians who, to whom he wrote it, it meant that for me to live was for you to know Christ too. And so Paul says, that's the way. You see, our salvation comes through the broken, bleeding body of Christ. And we are his body. And if we've never been broken and bled, There is no fragrance there. Now, that's why uh, we come to camp meeting, isn't it? You know, uh, isn't it interesting that the things we run from are the very things we ought to embrace? Have you ever run from Him? There was something inside you that said, I can't go his way. I can't do that. But he just kept persistently pursuing you. And finally you felt you had no option and you capitulated. And the minute you surrendered and his grace came, you said, why under the sun did I fight so long? You see, he's not our enemy. He's our friend. And so God said to Abraham, put him on the altar Pierce him with that knife. And Abraham did, and the book of Hebrews says that the glory of Abraham was, he said, I don't understand this, because God told me he would bring something good out of this boy. And I don't know how he's going to do it, but it kills me to do it, but I'll give it because I know he's not going to leave me now, and he's going to fulfill his purposes through the very sacrifice of the one I love the most. Now, I don't know what you may be holding on to today, but I know enough about the human heart, because I'm human enough, to know that there are people in a group like this, that there's some point where you're, you're protecting yourself. You're protecting your interests. And Christ is moving in to lay claim. I just want to say to you today, The faster you surrender, (laughs) the 
better it'll be. (laughs) If it's painful, don't run. If it's painful, embrace it, and you'll find new life coming out of what you fear. Isn't that a beautiful gospel? I'd like to ask you, is your B.O.? <laughs> How does God feel about it? <laughs> Even the likes of you and me, our lives can be a sweet-smelling aroma in His nostrils. May God make it that way in every one of our hearts today. <laughs> <laughs> 